Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to create busy, multimodal, and democratic libraries where students see themselves represented and feel welcome. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Rebecca Rubio, Coordinator for Libraries and Information Services in the Richmond School District. Rebecca Rubio started as a high school English teacher. Though like many teachers, she taught a variety of subjects, including French and Spanish. Full disclosure, she was the teacher who inspired me to become an educator, and I spent a lot of time early in my career asking myself, what would Ms. Rubio do? After many years of creative lessons in the classroom, Rebecca received her library credentials, moving into her school library. She eventually became the head librarian of her district, supporting all elementary and secondary teacher librarians and mentoring those new to the role. I met Rebecca at her office at the District Resource Center and recorded under a skylight on a very rainy December day. We began by discussing what 21st century school libraries actually look like versus the stereotypes. And so I, I think that when you have that Hollywood or stereotypical idea of a library, it's very quiet and, you know, it's just books, books, books. And then the, the librarian with her very tight bun is sitting there <laughs> shushing everyone. And I think if you go into, I think I, I would hope all the schools in the district, but at least most, that's a very different place. And so what do you, how would you describe a modern library? So it's interesting because my kids often say to me, they say, Mom, why are you so tired? Don't you just read books to kids all day? (laughs) And I think, oh my gosh, I wish I could just read books to kids all day because it's not at all the work that I do. And so that traditional image of that hush in the library, uh, we now talk about it as a hum, that there's this constant hum of energy. There's this constant hum of activity in a library space because a library... Um, I think I think of it often in, the, in the, that metaphor of a kitchen that I think traditionally a library was a place you like a kitchen. You'd go, you'd grab something out of the fridge and you would leave. You would go to retrieve a resource and, and that was the end of your experience. Whereas a kitchen is really a place where you go to create. And so how I see our libraries now is that they're busy, messy places. And when you go in there, you've got lots of ingredients, lots of things that you can work with. But the idea is that you're creating and that you are producing something new while you are there and that there are people there who can support you in whatever it is that you're in your process of creating. And so that's a messy, loud space versus that quiet space of, of refuge. And people say, well, a library should still be a place of refuge. And, and in many ways, it is a place of refuge for kids, but in a different way. It's not just a quiet space. It's a collaborative communal um, hub of a school. And that's a very different kind of refuge. And what we're actually seeing physically in our libraries is a change even of how that space is laid out. And so we're seeing, you know, we, we actually talk about li- library learning commons now versus just a traditional library. So in a library learning commons, we think a lot about the space and we think a lot about creating spaces within 
that space. And so we're starting to see lots of flexible and reconfigurable furniture. We're seeing alternative seating for students. It's not uncommon to go into an elementary or secondary library and you're seeing wobble stools and beanbag chairs and sofas and tables and chairs, but that there is this understanding that this is a place that is comfortable, but it's also a place of deep learning. The changing space is really important. Almost everything in our new libraries is on casters because the idea is that this is a flexible space. And so things need to be pushed out of the way and pulled back in and reconfigured all the time. And even something as simple as being able to reconfigure your furniture changes how that space is being used because now um, you're not stuck at tables and chairs in rows. Now you are expanding and flexing that space depending on the needs of the group or the users at any given time. That's actually something that I've been noticing in the evolution of those library spaces is other than books and computers, which would be traditional. I know in the school that I worked at, we had a Lego wall and Jenga and a maker space. And there, it was, I wouldn't say controversial, but there was definitely some pushback on this idea of, you know, students are there to learn and not play. But I do understand that more and more research is showing that play, even into the secondary level, is beneficial to learning. And that's actually, um, it's, it's one of those tensions for sure that we're seeing in our libraries is that the understanding of play is often seen as frivolous. And, and we talk a lot in our libraries about purposeful play and that we're starting to see our libraries amassing a lot of new resources. So whereas traditionally a library would have books as resources or magazines as resources, we still have those things, but now we have a lot of maker materials as resources. And, and can you explain what maker materials are? So maker materials are anything that allows students to um, physically create things. So a maker material could be either plugged or unplugged. So it could be, for example, blocks and Lego um, and building materials. It could be anything from um, craft materials and and anything that is actually asking students to, to build and create with their hands. And then more plugged maker materials are things more connected to coding or digital creation. And the idea that our libraries can concurrently be libraries and maker spaces suggests that we can now have a broader variety of materials in there that, yes, prompt play, so students can just play on a Lego wall, or can actually be using these materials to support learning. And so what we're starting to see, uh, especially in our elementary libraries, is a really interesting blend of literacy and maker. And at our core, we are libraries. So at our core, it's about literacies. It's about all of the literacies. Um, But to be able to use different materials to support those literacies is quite new. So whereas maybe traditionally in, in an elementary library, students would come in and be read a book and maybe you know, do a worksheet or do some storytelling. Now they are still working with stories, still working with books, but now manipulating and using materials to be imaginative and creative and and to extend their learning around the stories. And we're still, still really importantly talking about um, books and storytelling and empathy and characters. And we're still reading for all of the same reasons, but now we're finding alternative ways to use materials to show that thinking. So whether that's in story workshop with loose parts or if that's students building and creating and extending from the stories and doing design challenges, those materials have a place in the library and they are really transforming how teachers and students are thinking about their learning. And that I imagine creates a little bit more welcomeness 
if I can make that word, mm-hmm. into the library mm-hmm. where it's a space for people who have all sorts of interests and all sorts of strengths if you're not a strong reader. And it just brings joy to learning. I don't know, somewhere along the line, especially in secondary schools, we seem to have lost the idea that learning should be joyful, <laughs> that we, we forgot that it, that we should actually be intellectually engaged and, and, and involved in that learning. And it just, for so many of our students, um, learning equals pain, <laughs> learning equals boredom. And I don't know when we decided that that was okay. I, I think that piece of joy is really important. And just going back to, to your your thought about um, opening spaces for students who don't necessarily love books, an interesting byproduct is that the more we're allowing students to show their learning or show their understanding of books through multiple ways rather than a tr- the traditional paper and pen ways, we're actually creating a love of reading. Because, I, right? Because ironically, <laughs> um, we often in schools kill the kids' love of reading because we say, here, read the book and now do all these terrible tasks with it. Whereas in, we're really trying in our libraries to say, let's read something together and let's do some really wonderful tasks with it. And so, again, the goal is still around literacy and joy of reading and creating lifelong readers. And, and sometimes the new materials allow us entry points to do that. Yeah. And then when I was um, in the classroom with my own French resources, which I'd curated, I decided that I was going to look through all, I was going to count all of the books, and then I was going to count how many uh, female protagonists I had, mm-hmm. how many protagonists of color I had, how many LGBTQ plus protagonists, and I believe I had 163 resources, and none of my qualifications really, I, there were and more women being protagonists, although overwhelmingly school resources mm-hmm. seem to think a male protagonist is the only way to get boys to read. Mm-hmm. And then good luck finding mm-hmm. a protagonist of color or LGBTQ yep. representation. So, I mean, at their core, libraries are democratic places, right? That's that's their fundamental purpose is to be a democratic equitable place for all. And we look at our public libraries, it's access for all. This is a place where everybody can have access to computers and books and so on. In our libraries, that's a similar idea. And and so a lot of what we're doing in our libraries, and it's not directly connected to books, but I'll get there, is putting things in there for equitable access. So for example, all of our secondary libraries all got 3D printers. And people say, well, why do we need 3D printers in the library? 3D printers are in the tech departments. And our argument was, If you're not in a tech course, you actually don't have access to that. But if we put a 3D printer in the library, everybody in the building has access to learn how to 3D print regardless of their program, regardless of their age, their grade, their job, anything. And so that's just a small example of looking at libraries as equitable places where whatever we put in there is accessible to all. Digital librarians talk a lot about diversity in our collections um, because the role of the library is to reflect everybody that's in that community. So every child should be able to go to a library and see themselves represented there, that their their religion is there, their beliefs are there, their color is there, their sexuality is there. And so that is a, a core tenement for librarians and always has been. It is challenging because publishers aren't always publishing the things that we need to see. We don't see as much diversity in literature, and especially in young adult literature, as we need to see. And I guess my thing, too, is that when I do sometimes see that diversity, it's always a special issue book. Like a kid grappling with their sexuality, 
Yeah. And so those coming out books became really popular with suddenly, again, students struggling with their sexuality. And, and, and so that was first and foremost. We are seeing a shift in young adult literature. We are seeing a shift. And, and again, in my role, I just have to read a lot of yeah. it. And we're starting to see more diversity and that there simply just are gay characters. Yeah. They just are. They're just there. Now, they're rarely the protagonists. They're often the friend. However, we are starting to see that shift. Um, In Richmond, just last year, we finally uh, passed a SOGI policy, so sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, and and it was long overdue, uh, which basically said that um, students of all... Uh, sexual identity, orientation, and so on, uh, were to be respected, which is a pretty core (laughs) fundamental idea. But one of the things that the district really supported me in is making sure that we bought a core collection of books to put in every single library, regardless of that school library's budget, regardless of that school community's belief system. And so part of what I did last year uh, was to curate and find a core bundle that was put in every single school library so that, again, there's that equity piece. It doesn't matter what school you go to in Richmond, um, your library will have books that represent all sexual orientations and gender identities. It's a small piece, but it was an intentional one to say there shouldn't be a library in this district that doesn't have this represented. Uh, We have a cultural diversity committee uh, on the district and we are just in the process of creating core book bundles as well to make sure that all religions are represented in our libraries regardless of, and so those are things, purchases that I make um, and then put it to school libraries because we have to be equitable uh, sometimes from the top down, sometimes. Now our attempts to make sure that the rest of our collection is really diverse. That's actually one of the topics um, I meet with my teacher librarians once a month. We have a a TL study group and one of the topics is diversity. And one of the things that I would really like to challenge them to do is to do what you did in your collection. Yeah. To do a really critical look at their collection and ask themselves how white, how heterosexual, how male is your collection and how can you then start to round that out? And that will be work that we do together, where we as a group of librarians start to um, find good resources. One of the things too, I think is that as book lovers, I'm off, like I'm loath to toss a book. There's something just almost criminal about putting a book in the recycling. The, the technical term for that is weeding. Yeah. So teacher librarians have to weed their collections all the time. It's the hardest thing because at, at our core, teachers are hoarders. We try to keep <laughs> and hold on to everything. Um, it's really hard when teacher librarians weed because often the staff panics and says, what are you doing? Why are you throwing out books? We shouldn't be throwing out books. And when teacher librarians weed, they're doing a really important job because what they are doing is they're saying this collection needs to represent our world now it needs to represent our community now and it needs to do so respectfully um, and we know better so we need to do better and so very often the books that we're pulling have to come off the shelves because they misrepresent and they are uh, in many ways hurtful and damaging so a little bit shift i know bc as well as washington Um, has really been embracing Indigenous learning principles as well as Indigenous materials in the classroom. Mm -hmm. How have you found that curation process as well as implementing that and getting those resources out into schools? 
So I, I love that you asked that question because the we've talked a little bit about my role in supporting libraries and schools. The other piece or another piece of my role is managing the district library. And so that's called the District Resource Center. And it's essentially a, a massive lending library for the district. And we don't uh, lend out individual books. That's what you'd go to your library for. But we put together kits. So enough resources to use in your classroom around a certain topic or a certain area. And so since I've been in the role, one of my goals has been quite deliberately to try to embed um, as authentically and, and realistically as possible Indigenous content or perspectives into as many kits as possible. So let me give you an example. Please. We would have had, and we do still have, um, a kit that is First Nations Myths and legends or first nation stories actually myths is not the correct word first nation stories and at one point i stopped and i thought well why do we have those separate why don't we have a kit of myths legends and stories in which aboriginal ones are also embedded because as non-indigenous educators we struggle we struggle with where's the con where does that fit where does it fit in my science where does it fit in social studies where does it fit and so we've been making a conscious effort to try to embed as much of that as possible into existing kits rather than making it other if yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. And so, for example, we have an earthquake kit that we loan out to grade eight teachers. It has a shake table. It has lots of information about seismic shifts and San Andreas Fault and all those things. But it also has uh, information from an indigenous point of view or stories and understandings of why the earth shakes. And it actually has historical records of um, how seismologists understood the last big quake in this area, but also how the indigenous people explained it. And so as a science teacher, I get this kit on seismology and I'm supported because there's this little piece here that's already there and that's authentic and it's been produced um, by our First Nations Education Steering Committee. And so that allows our non-indigenous educators, which is the bulk of us, to say here's an authentic and natural way to start thinking about multiple perspectives. So speaking of kits, mm -hmm. um, you talked about the earthquake kit. Is there a kit that you've put together that you're the most proud of? Actually, we just finished it. And I'm, I'm bursting with pride with this one because it's been a two-year process. And usually our kits are, you know, we buy materials to put them in a tub. We buy, you know, microphones for podcasting and, and out they go. Yesterday, we just created digital microscopes, threw them in and away they go. But the one kit I've been working on for two years and it just finished is... Um, is what we call our bog eco kit. So locally in our area here in Richmond, we have the Lulu Island bog, which is actually what we call the Richmond Nature Park. M many teachers in our district take their students to the Richmond Nature Park, and they, you know, explore it a little bit as a bog. And we've been really working with Indigenous per uh, perspectives and, and the First Peoples principles of learning. And one of them talks about the importance of place. And so we started thinking about what if we looked at the bog, not just from a scientific lens of it being an ecosystem, but also looked at it as an important place here in Richmond, and not just any bog, but our bog. And so the kit that we've produced is an eco kit, if you will. It looks at biodiversity and species, and we worked closely with the Richmond Nature Park and all the things that are actually indigenous to the bog and which things have now been completely depleted and which are the invasive species. So from a science point of view, all of that. 
And then I worked really closely with Musqueam to say, what can you tell me about this land? What can you tell me about the bog through an indigenous lens? And so we had lots of conversations around land use and how the indigenous peoples use the land and how um, the settlers use that land. And, and we had lots of really interesting conversations around how actually the, the Musqueam people and the settlers work really closely um, to harvest and so on. So we, we, we were able to embed an, um, a Musqueam story that's related to that land. We were able to add the Hunkaminam language to everything in that kit. Wow. I know. We were, from a science point of view, the kit has skulls and footprints and scat of all of the animals that are naturally living on that space. So there's, and, and all the life cycles and all of that scientifically. From... The indigenous lands. Um, how did how did our people use that land? What are the stories connected to that land? Which was really fascinating. And then I went and worked. So that was the Richmond Nature Park was part of the collaboration. The Musqueam people were part of that collaboration. And then I went to the Richmond Archives and said, "What can you tell me?" Well, the Richmond Archives had these amazing old photos of the bog, and so we then added a component to the kit around land use and land erosion. Discovered that the peat had been used during World War Two as a source of heat Whoa. but in so doing they completely eroded oh, the yeah. bog so but really interesting conversations around place and so what has happened in this place so it could have been just a generic let's talk about bogs but it turned into let's talk about bogs and ecosystems but let's talk about ours and let's really ground ourselves in place and the most beautiful moment was when um, I was meeting with some of the members of the Musqueam band and I showed them the photos that had come from the Richmond archives and one of them said, she said, I think that's my grandfather. Whoa. And so then I just stepped back as they examined these photos and asked for copies because it was a photo of a canoe. And so, and it was a really beautiful moment for them to say, oh, you've unearthed something we didn't know. There was a photograph we didn't know. We want to have that for our Musqueam people. So I'm excited to get this kit into the hands of teachers and students because it does shift practice. We're still hitting the science outcomes of ecology and so on and so on. But we're bringing in Indigenous perspectives. We're bringing in understandings of place. And then in terms of things that you're currently working on, is there any kits or big ideas that you're struggling with and kind of muddling your way through at the moment? We always struggle with educational technology. Like just yesterday, uh, one of my colleagues came in and said, we have to buy the Oculus Go. (laughs) And so we have a lot of VR goggles, uh, but they're, you know, the traditional ones, you have to slide in a phone and they're problematic and they're not really great. And so we really grapple with how do we provide technology in a way that is safe and accessible. We worry a lot about privacy issues. We worry a lot about that balance between interacting with people and interacting with machines. Um, that's always a tension that I'm, I'm, I'm working with. Uh, it's also not an area of expertise for me. So when someone gives me VR goggles, I panic a little because I think I know nothing about VR. Then I do the learning. Yeah. So... I guess for me, the biggest challenge is that there's always the learning. There's always a, what do we not know? How do we stay ahead of what schools need? You know, teachers are saying, well, can we get drones? And I think, well, we could, but we're right near an airport. So there's a whole lot of <laughs> issues around <laughs> us getting drones. But if that's, if that's what the kind of technology we need to be providing for our kids, then how do we do that? And, and so for me, that's always the challenge. How do I do that? What are the boundaries? Where How do we keep kids safe? But also on that cutting edge of learning, um, can we stop doing poster projects? And can we start really meaningfully integrating 
good technology, good resource, good knowledge. And so that's, that's always hard. Yeah. That's always hard. And that's also, I think just for anyone involved in technology yeah. is how do I make sure that like I'm buying the VHS and not the Betamax for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our schools? And how is it, how is it going to be sustainable? Like if I buy it today, is it still going to be relevant in two years? Because I also have to think always about the relevance of what we're purchasing and the relevance of the resources that we're giving kids. And I don't want it to just be trendy and the new thing. It needs to be really thoughtfully supporting curriculum and, and supporting skills that students need to have. And so we have to be really careful about the trends and the exciting, shiny things versus the really deep learning. What is it that we're really deeply learning when we buy a drone? Yeah. Right, right. And so there's, again, it comes back to that play and that purposeful play. And so that's always a, a guiding principle for me. Are we just playing or are we purposefully playing and linking to curriculum? Yeah. We live in a world of fake news and of overwhelming amount of information and research isn't just going to the library pulling the three books about cactuses and then leaving. So how are librarians and libraries adapting to the needs of students Mm -hmm. and also what they're being called upon to do? The role of the librarian, of the teacher librarian, because in our district, our librarians are teachers first and then have library qualifications. And that's a very different piece than just being a librarian. The changes that are happening in their profession are dramatic because suddenly they're expected to be tech specialists, they're expected to be digital specialists, they're expected to be research specialists, and of course, know all the books so they can recommend the perfect book. Um, without a doubt, their attention's there, and, and it's hard for our librarians, our teacher librarians, to, to, to meet all of those needs. Uh, in my work with them, I seem to find that everybody is working on one piece of that. So some of them are working specifically on digital literacy and they're really working on understanding how to do research in this new age and teaching students those really important skills of being able to navigate the the barrage of information and how to be critical consumers of information. And for some of them, that's their focus. And others are really focusing on other aspects, the the literacy pieces and the storytelling um, and the beauty and language and empathy and all of those things. So everybody is working on something, uh, but the demands are definitely increasing. And, and you know, sometimes I, I hear from them, this is not what I signed up for 20 years ago when I signed up for the, it, it, this is not what it was. And so our work is gentle and careful because everybody um, everybody's on a different journey and moving along. But without a doubt, all of our teachers in our schools and our librarians are feeling new pressures because the world's changing really, really fast. And we're all trying to keep up. And then my favorite question that I ask everybody <laughs> is that I've given you unlimited funds. Your kids yes. are, are older, so yes. you don't need the child care, but maybe you need pet or husband care. I don't know. <laughs> Both. Yes. <laughs> and unlimited time in which to focus on spending your unlimited money. Okay. What are you doing with that money? In my ideal school, the library is physically situated in the middle of the building. It's the hub. Ideally, it is glass, so everybody can see the buzz that's in there. Uh, That space is staffed by qualified teacher librarians, enough of them, whatever that number is, to meet the needs of the school. That space is inviting and warm and configurable and flexible. That space is full of books, uh, a good, current, 
contemporary, engaging, diverse collection. There is uh, enough technology to meet the needs of all the learners. That space has rooms. So it's not just one room. It has multiple rooms that are sort of breakout rooms where students and staff and groups can go and work and learn together where they have access to uh, a TV to project and, and do their work. Uh, in this space, we see learning happening in lots of different directions, student to student, teacher to teacher, teacher to student, and the other way around. We see a lot of energy and we see joy yeah. and excitement and what we call intellectual engagement, where kids are not just doing school and going through the motions of getting stuff done, but are actually emotionally invested in their learning and it's happening in our libraries because what they need the people the resources the technology are there yeah. that's how i'd spend my money nice. <laughs> uh, well thank you very much um if people want to reach out to you what are the ways that i know that you're on twitter so how can they find out more about what you're doing i'm very active on twitter and i i am intentionally active on twitter because it's my best professional learning network that's where i am able to share what we are doing but it's also where i do a lot of my learning so i'm just at rebecca rubio rebecca with one c so uh, i think that's that's the best place to see what's what's exciting in our in our district cool awesome. okay thank you thank you And there you have it, how the role of the school librarian is constantly changing, how to thoughtfully integrate Indigenous ways of knowing, and why the library is a messy, busy kitchen of learning and play. If you'd like to find out more about what teachers in Canada and the U.S. are doing to transform education, please head to my new website, LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please forward it to your friends and colleagues, as well as rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.